0: So, hello, I'm Alex Rockkeen, I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, and I'm very pleased to be joined uh, this evening, uh, London time, this afternoon, US time, by Scott Kim, uh, for the latest in the Shedinar series. And as people have watched any of these before will know, I never want to uh, speak for the person I'm introducing or speaking to. So Scott, over to you. Can I I get people to, to learn a little bit about you from yourself, please?
1: Yes. Well, Alex, I'm honored to be on your Shed in our series. I, although I would much rather be inside that very attractive shed of yours or show or I don't know what you got, <laughs> but um, I am a psychiatrist, although I haven't seen, uh, I do not treat patients anymore since about a few years ago, although I did practice for 20 years. I'm also a philosopher, I actually I wrote a, thesis on Immanuel Kant when I was young and spent most of my life doing both empirical and uh, recently more, you could say, thought pieces in bioethics. So I've done a lot of studies on decision-making capacity, surrogate consent. Um, I wrote a book on um, decision-making capacity that was published about 10 years ago now. So that's my background.
0: And one of the, well, there are so many things I'd like to talk about with you, Scott, but one of the things that we sort of wanted to frame this around was the fact that you and I have been working together for a few years now on the Mental Health and Justice Project, in particular on the kind of contested capacity work stream. And one of the sort of opening things I was wanting to sort of, I found very fruitful thinking through with you, and I think others would find it helpful to get your take on, is how you, as someone who knows a huge amount about decision-making capacity and decision-making competence, see the way in which we approach things in England under the Mental Capacity Act with our statutory framework and our statutory concerns. And I'd just be interest, really interested in your take, on t- your take on it.
1: Yeah, you know, there's so many topics that we could talk about, because what's fascinating about the UK or England and Wales, I should say, under the MCA is because it's a law that covers a very large jurisdiction on this topic. And it's quite modern. So it's very unusual in that sense. And also, I think the other thing is that you have the court of protection that publishes, you know, fact level cases, which is just amazing. I mean, in the United States, we have, I have actually had a law student try to track down um, rulings at the court level, initial court level, it's very difficult to find. So the difference between what I have experienced here and there is that here, we, most of what we do, we have developed over time organically. So there's some broad concepts and regulation and law So most of the capacity-related legal policy we would have attached to certain other laws like Mm -hmm. proxy uh, decision-making, end-of-life decision-making kind of laws in individual states. And in doing so, they need to define, well, who's competent, who's not competent. You will see I use the terms interchangeably. Um, So that's the situation here. And we have developed things kind of organically. So there are lots of problems that come up as you apply that concept, because at, at bottom, conceptually, the model, the functional model of capacity that we use here is same as in uh, MCA. You know, the criteria, how they're framed, how they're defined are somewhat different, but the idea of having functional abilities to be, uh, have, uh, capacity is the same. So what's really been fun is to see how many of those issues that we kind of work out organically, you might say, that I, we pass on in our culture, so to speak. You're kind of talking about it kind of officially. They're lawyers, philosophers, human rights activists, and so, uh, social workers, psychiatrists, all kind of arguing about it. And um, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's very different because of that. So it, I think you will, without a doubt, I, I have no doubt that as a result of MCA, there will be a mountain of written material debating these ins and outs of many of these issues. Um, and you, it, the England and Wales will be the center of it because I don't think there is that many if, you, if we could actually track all that, uh, all that's written about these issues, my guess is that you have far surpassed any other jurisdiction in any you know in terms of mother material is my guess.
0: Yeah, I, I, I suspect that might be right um, just because of the because as you say, there's a specialist court. I mean other places have got tribunals or, or in some cases judges, sitting some of the time hearing hearing these cases but I think there's been this kind of real drive to get at least as many judgments as possible published and it's only the tip of the iceberg but yeah I was wondering if there was I mean having been very nice about the MCA as it were and and about the Court of Protection are there any things where you go because you're always a brilliant critical friend in our meetings any bits where you go you you, as it were get taken aback by the way in which to, either the way decisions yeah. are made or the yeah. way things are talked about.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's several things. I would say that uh, you and I have talked about this before. We could go right to the case, the issue of how the law defines or has a checklist for best interests, for example. Yeah. Which, when I very first time I read that, when it was in draft form, I thought, how, how, how is this best interest? <laughs> you know for an american when you read it because if you read it what you really emphasize at the core of how you're supposed to conceptualize best interests under the mca is essentially written as synonymous with substituted judgment right so you're you're what because best interest in the best interest checklist and mca is defined I would say purely subjectively from the perspective of uh, P, I think that would be the generic term. Um, I read that and I thought, well, that's kind of strange. Why didn't they just come out and say, you need to prioritize what the person would have wanted as a substitute to judgment and then say, well, sometimes it's really difficult to know what he would have wanted because you just don't know. In that case, you know the people who are making having to make decisions for him should use best interest in the you know taking into account the best medical interest objective interests you could say um which is typically the way it goes in the us
0: I you might and, just be helpful for people who aren't familiar with with that uh, just if you for just for 30 seconds if you explain because i think the term best interests is used in so many different ways. And you've, you've got right. a very precise description, I think an accurate description of certainly how it's understood by the cases in England. And yes. I just, just to take on, if someone says best interest to you as an American clinician, as it were, what does that, what does that mean?
1: Yes, yeah, this is where I think that the, the fact that it came from, you might say, top down where you guys involve theoreticians very early on in developing all this, I think that had an impact because if you put philosophers and lawyers in the room and then have them think about what best interests are, they're going to start talking about theories of welfare, theories of well-being, and then immediately people will go, "Well, what do you mean by objective welfare, or do you mean as defined by the person him or herself?" that's also best interest because it, and truly you should define the, uh, well-being based on what the person would have wanted, you see. So I did I don't know, I don't know the history of the law, but so if you start from the theoretical discussion, there is a, in a context in which you're really worried about paternalism, somebody else coming onto the scene and saying, well, you should really want this because this is best for you. If, if, the whole context of making the law is to some, put some boundaries against paternalism. Then when you start talking about best interests, the model of best interest that's gonna be most attractive to the people in the room will be a subjective definition of best interests. Okay, so you can sort of understand why MCA went down that route. In the US, if you use best interest in in a hospital, yeah, you know, what, what should we do for this person? You know, he's lost capacity whatever. If somebody uses best interest, it will immediately be understood as kind of objective best interests. Like, would he die if this happened? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and then somebody will say, yeah, but, but is that what he would have wanted? You know? Yeah. I mean, so there would have been this kind of a uh, scene as a way of weighing the tension. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's the way it would go in the, in the States.
0: Yeah, and so I think one of, the, one of the things I think we've had creative discussions about, and in fact, that there's an article we've written about a, a recent case, which I'll we'll put a link to, is if you start moving or compressing the language of best interest, so it really does do the work of essentially substituted judgment, and yes. I think that one of the points of that, that, at that stage, I mean, A, that leads to, well, how do we know what the person would have wanted? And then also, how do you, wh- where and how do you take into account other factors? For instance, what, yeah. what, what clinically right. might be? Yeah.
1: So, you know, as you know, since we wrote that piece, um, I think it should be out in a few weeks, within the next few weeks. But so you have this law, um and what happens well there will be there could be cases where um you come at the scene as the judge who's required to make a decision from that person's point of view but suppose that's the only direction you get you know you say to a person well here's this difficult situation he's comatose or whatever we don't know he he can't make a decision for himself now but here's all the evidence you can gather to figure out what he would have chosen and that's the only option you have you don't you can't fall back to well most people would have wanted this because that's generally objectively the you know in most people's best interest you can't do that you have to so if that's the only option then um what if you're evidentiary sources kind of conflicting mm. then what, what, what do you do um well you still have to make a decision from that mindset suppose the outcome of that decision is life or death not only that the indications you have what he said he would have wanted would have met something like shortening a natural course of life right because he chose that over a life of having some disability or something like that. In that case, it seems to me, um, there's no recourse for a person to think about it in terms of, well, this is a tough decision. On the one hand, this is what he sounds like he wanted. There's some conflicting issues there. On the other hand, wow, this is like an outcome that traditionally, you might think is kind of a bad outcome. It's a tension. So we need to be really careful. Suppose all your guidance is entirely only about what this person would have wanted, regardless of what the outcome is. Then it's it seems to me there isn't a clear uh, accounting of the actual genuine conflict of values that actually exist, because you're asked not to look at one factor that
0: weighs
1: heavily. I think that's one potential factor that could happen. Although, you know, you you have to, you must assume in a courtroom, obviously, people want to get all the facts right, and the facts can sometimes speak for themselves. But you can see in some extreme cases in which if this is the framework, it could lead to sometimes lead to some bad or questionable um, line of reasoning.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose ju- just teasing that out for a second. If you've got, and one of the things you mentioned at the beginning when we were talking about this is how our Act, the MCA, covers so many domains of decision making. Yes. And so, if you, as it were, take a across the piece, all the different things, all the different possible types of decisions, all the different situations of stakes. Is it better that you have a model which drives and I think it's fair, I think it's right to say it's perhaps not so much the MCA itself, as opposed to the dominant interpretation of the MCA, which Mm. drives you to say best interests comes very, very close to substituted judgment. Yes. Is it better across the piece, given all the types of decisions which are made to go start with the person and effectively almost always finish with the person? Well, I, I would put it differently. Yeah.
1: I think that the way, and I know I, I'm not an expert in uh, case law as you are, but let's, if I go with my understanding of that, those case law interpretation of the MCA and, and on a kind of a facial reading of the MCA itself, it seems to me um, what it's asking you to do is to conceive of the person only as a um, uh, a person's identity is what the person has articulated, yeah. and it's not permissible to assume that we all share a certain common humanity that we can kind of assume that most people would want uncontroversially that we accept all the time and how we deal with things. I, I would suspect you could come up with many examples of law in which that's the case. Even if a person doesn't say so, you don't have to assume, you don't have to have positive specific particular evidence that that person values his own life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's a presumption that you can generally have. So to the extent that that is something that a person must have, if that person never specifically said that and all only positive evidence is only about how he wants to limit his life, then the the framework has this kind of a perverse effect of treating individuals as individuals, but not sharing any kind of shared common humanity in some sense. And I think that is a very peculiar way of thinking about, it's surrogate decision-making because it's almost like, it, you know, <laughs> a funny way of putting it is that it's almost like in England, it's assumed that everybody will be extreme eccentrics. And you just have to assume that about everybody. You can't ever assume that, you know, we all share any kind of common humanity-based uh, welfare interests. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, and I I doubt what, of course, I'm saying that facetiously and in most situations, this doesn't come, won't make a difference. But you can imagine some cases where it could. And you suspect that maybe the uh, uh, Barnsley Hospital trust case, MSP case might be one of those.
0: Yeah. I mean, it we it it's and it's one of the reasons that we've written this article together is because it's it's factually so striking and it poses... It poses so many questions about if this is where the direction of travel is going in terms of best interest decision making in England and Wales, what other things does that carry with it? You know, what, for instance, what level of evidential standard should be put in place before you can say, I'm sufficiently certain I know what this person would have wanted. If that's going to be your determinative determinative mm-hmm. thing. That's right. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's so useful to, and and I think it's also, it's important probably to note that the idea that best interest needs to be subsumed, almost entirely subsumed within it, the idea of what, what, what would this person do, is obviously completely in line with the interpretation, for instance, of the Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities about the UN CRPD, about Article 12, that it's, it's will and preferences. I think one of the things to me is, is really interesting is, although the law in England and Wales has said not to comply, when you start getting to some of the decisions like MSP, it could be said, this looks like best interpretation of will and preferences. And That's it true. does then raise some pretty big questions about who is it you're getting the information from?
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah, How so, can you
0: be confident?
1: That's right. And I think one of the things that we should, I would point out, is the fact that I share the concerns about paternalism. But um, paternalism come the, the It's important to remember it comes up, and what makes it possible isn't that we are worried about that person's welfare and. We want to impose our own views. The fact is, the thing that makes it possible is the fact, at least in this context, is that the person currently lacks autonomy. Now, you can, you can, uh, we can, I don't want to go in the rabbit hole of talking about CRPD and what does it, what does that statement mean in that context. But I think just descriptively, it, I don't think there could be any dispute that some people are not able to do certain factual things that we normally call having autonomy. Okay. So in that context, it is the person can't do it. So the the reality is no matter what theory, what anything you arrive on the scene with to help that person, somebody else has to do it. Yep. Okay. Even the act of trying to preserve that person's authentic choice and values carried into reality is wholly depend on other people's perceiving, interpreting and implementing it for that person. And as long as that is the case, the responsibility that we have on the scene is tremendous. And I think the one of the dangers I would say that subjective well-being based or entirely substitute this decision-making only based scheme is, I'm going to return to what I said earlier, when you're not, when it's not 100% obvious, when there is really dramatic consequences, you're kind of stuck because you've tied your hands to only one source of evidence. And you're kind of almost required to put blinkers on about this other massive amount of evidence that in normal life that we should assume is that we share as people comment, whatever. Right. And to not be able to do that, at you, you know, appeal to that at all. It's like you, it's almost like you're required to respect somebody's authenticity without affirming the reality of our common humanity. And that, is very um, it's a little bit too theory driven uh, to me because it ignores sort of the <laughs> the reality you know the obvious. So I I would say that um you know, there have been surveys of family members uh, in the U.S. Uh, I suspect there have been in U.K. too, like especially about a person with dementia or whatever, as they get worse and worse. And bioethicists come and say, well, do you use substituted decision-making or do you really worry about their best interests? And if you give them those kind of theoretical options, they'll choose whatever you asked to do because they'll choose A or B. But when you analyze what they talk about, it's always some combination, right? (laughs) So that's the reality. And I think that it's important, I I worry that the structure of how you're supposed to look at this under certain legal constructions doesn't fully recognize the entire reality of how we need to make decisions.
0: Scott, I'm afraid we're out of time. As ever, there are so many more things I'd love to ask you, but I think that's just, it's such a fantastically useful, as I said, critical friend approach to how we're thinking about things. So I'm really grateful for your time. Um, thank you so much for your input. And I'll put a link to the article when it's up.
1: Yes, thank you. It's a pleasure.